David Pastor spent some time out in Colorado doing some mountain ministry. Um, I was told that many souls were saved by his time out on the ski slopes. Um, and since he was so busy just baptizing people out there in the Rocky Mountains, you guys are stuck with me today. But fear not, because today is actually a really exciting Sunday. You've probably figured out by now. But this past week, churches from all over the world begin participating in the season of Lent. And we kicked off Lent here at Wellspring a few days ago with um, our Ash Wednesday service that many of you engaged in. And Lent is a 40-day period that uh, precedes Easter in the church calendar. And it's an opportunity to spend around six weeks or so preparing our hearts for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a time of reflection and repentance that helps us better understand the significance of Christ's death, the power of his resurrection, and the hope that is offered to every single one of us. And since Lent is the season that comes right before Easter, where we celebrate Christ's resurrection, we thought it would be pretty cool and beneficial to examine some of Jesus' final words during just um, the last night of his life. Because when people know that they're about to die, when someone knows they have only a day or two left to live, their words take a little, little more significance, don't they? When people know they got a day or two to live, they speak about things that truly matter. So we're going to spend the next six weeks examining Jesus' words as he interacted with his disciples the night before his death. And the night before his death, we know that Jesus shared a meal with his disciples. It's commonly referred to as the Last Supper. And he shared his meal with his disciples that night. And most of the interactions that took place that night happened in a room called the Upper Room. And just to give you guys a visual, I uh, was able to come across a photo of kind of um, what the Upper Room looks like today in Israel. So here's what it looks like. That is the Upper Room. So... The words and actions we're going to examine over the next six weeks took place right there, in the upper room. And to be up front with you guys, these, these Lent sermons are not going to be happy, feel-good messages. That time is coming. We know how the story unfolds, right? With Easter and the resurrection where we celebrate. But for now, we are kind of marching towards the death of Jesus Christ. So go ahead and open your Bibles, and we're going to dive into this. Open up to John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. It should be page uh, 981 if you're using a pew Bible. John 13, starting in verse 1, says, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. 
After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said, Not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, has washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now, in order for us to properly understand the magnitude of what's actually happening in this passage, we have to understand the context. And so, up until this point, Jesus had spent the last three years of his life primarily with the 12 men in this room. Every scholar believes that he spent over 18 months exclusively of his three-year ministry just with these 12 men, his disciples, They shared hundreds of meals together, they traveled together, they cracked jokes at each other, they laughed, they cried, they wept together. They performed miracles together and witnessed some incredible things as they followed their master. These were Jesus' closest friends, and he loved them in deeper ways than they could ever possibly understand. And if you look at verse 1, it says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And this passage in many ways marks the beginning of the end for Christ in regards to his time on earth. His disciples didn't fully understand what was about to happen, but Jesus knew what was coming. He knew that he had less than 24 hours to live. Less than 24 hours to live. Can you imagine being in that moment If that was your reality, just some of the sorrow and anguish that would be present in your soul. He knew that really within six to nine hours that he was going to be betrayed by a man sitting in that room. That he was going to be falsely accused in front of a crowd. He was going to be mocked, spit upon, beaten. Metal spikes were going to be pounded into his flesh. And the prophet Isaiah says that his appearance would be so disfigured beyond any human being and his body marred beyond human likeness. In other words, he was going to be unrecognizable because they were going to mess him up so badly. And that's not even the worst news for Jesus. It got much worse. With his death came the responsibility of bearing, carrying the weight of every sin of all of humanity for all time. And because the Father cannot look upon sin, the Father had to turn His face away from His Son. And Jesus experienced the anguish of hell 
which is total separation from the Father. And that is why we see him cry out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was no escaping the horrible abandonment that was awaiting Jesus. And so what he does on his last night is just astonishing. While gathered with his 12 closest friends, on the most agonizing night of his life, when he had the right to be completely consumed with his own self-pity and sorrow, he gets up and begins to wash the feet of his friends. When nobody would have blamed him for throwing a fit or complaining, Jesus 100% completely turns his focus away from himself and towards his disciples. In the midst of his agony, he gave his life away. In the midst of his suffering, he gave his heart away by serving others. And in Jesus' time, and probably our time as well, washing someone's feet is considered the most humiliating act a person can perform. The roads of ancient Israel are covered in dust for anyone that's ever been there. Covered in dust. Sneakers and tennis shoes hadn't been invented yet, so they had to wear sandals. And so the dust would stick to their sweaty, smelly feet. Washing the feet of others was was viewed as a disgusting act, and only the lowest people in society were expected to perform this act. Feet washing was the job of servants and slaves. And what makes this story even more intriguing is what was taking place in the hearts of the disciples as they sat at that table on that night. John's account does not go into it, but, the, um, but Luke gives a great description as to kind of some of the mumbling going on with his disciples in the upper room at the Last Supper. Let's read what Luke has to say. You got that, Todd? All right, it says, A dispute also arose among them, the disciples, as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. So on the most horrific night of his life, Jesus finds his disciples stroking their egos, trying to argue and prove which one of them is the greatest. They were completely consumed with their own self-glory, self-image, reputation. And the self-centeredness in this room on this night is actually sickening. It is sickening. And while the towel and the water basin was present, They all saw it, no doubt. All 12 of them in that room saw that water basin. Not one of them was willing to get up and wash the feet of his friends. And after the disciples had finished arguing over who was the greatest, Jesus stands up, takes the basin, pours water to it, and begins to go around the room and wash the feet of every man sitting at that table, performing the most humble act of service imaginable. And he even washed the feet of Judas Iscariot, the man who just a couple hours later was going to betray him. Can you imagine? 
So imagine, I want to get some feedback from you guys. Put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. If it helps to close your eyes, do so. So you just spent 20 minutes arguing with the other 11 guys of why, you, of why you're the greatest disciple, why you are number one, why you are the best, you deserve the glory. You spent 20 minutes arguing, and all of a sudden, your Lord and Master, you see him get up and bend down and start washing the feet of every man at that table. What would be stirring inside of you in that moment? I want to hear from you guys. What kinds of thoughts or emotions would be running through your heart and mind as you watch your Lord perform the most humble act imaginable that you were unwilling to perform? What would be stirring inside you? Yes. Yeah, yeah, you might think, this guy is crazy. What's he, yeah, what is he doing? Yeah, sure. What else? Yes. Yes, I'd be, yeah, this is backwards. This is not making sense. So who else raised their hand? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, she said she would be embarrassed. That she wasn't the one that did that. Yeah. What else? Say that again. Mm. Yeah. Guilt for not having the depth of character to do that yourself. Yeah. Anything else? Sure, yeah, totally confused. We know how the story plays out. They didn't. They were living in the moment. Yeah, it didn't make sense. Pastor John MacArthur had this to say about what took place in the upper room. He said, if anyone in that room should have been thinking about the glory that would be his in the kingdom, it was Jesus. But instead of being concerned with his glory, and in spite their selfishness, He was totally conscious of revealing clearly his personal love to the twelve, that they might be secure in it. And here is the great lesson of this whole account. Only absolute humility can generate absolute love. It is the nature of love to be selfless, giving. Christ's love and his humility are inseparable. Only absolute humility can generate absolute love. We can't love others like Christ until we have allowed ourselves to be humbled by the love of Christ. We can't love others like Christ until we have allowed ourselves to be humbled by the love of Christ. And it's only when we have a proper understanding of who we are, it's only then that we're able to love selflessly. For those of you that attended our Ash Wednesday service, you realize that The season of Lent is a wonderful time to be reminded of who we are. Many of the slides that Kelsey put together were just fantastic reminders of that reality. And I compiled a short list that I want to show again to, again, remind us of who we are. So here's what we read last Wednesday. We remember that we are human. We are not God. We cannot save ourselves. We need a Savior. In John 1, we meet John the Baptist. He was a man who knew his place 
He says in verse 27, Jesus is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Later, the same man says, he must increase, I must decrease. And in Job 40 verse 4, after God answers him, Job acknowledges his finite self by simply responding, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. And remember, from the dust you were made, and to the dust you shall return. And I'm not trying to belittle the fact that we are God's creation, loved more than we could ever even understand or imagine. That is 100% true. I would never doubt that or argue that. The point I'm trying to make is that until we properly understand we are nothing apart from Christ, we will always, always think more of ourselves than of others. Our life is but a vapor in the grand scope of eternity. We're here today and gone tomorrow. We are not the Savior. And even though we are sinful, selfish creatures, God, for some crazy reason, still chose to come to us and wash our feet, die on our behalf, so that we could experience the hope of his resurrection. And if that wasn't enough, he's crazy enough to allow us to be his representatives to a hurting world. And if that doesn't humble us, and if that doesn't humble you, I'm not sure what will. I'm not sure what will. And no matter how hard we try, we cannot muster up Christ-like humility out of our own self, or our own flesh, or our own efforts, because we will always fail and we'll always fall short. Because apart from Christ, we're not that good of people. And I'm sorry if that's a shock to you. Apart from Christ, we are sinful Arrogant, prideful, bitter, jealous, greedy, and full of lust. Humility only comes from fixing our eyes on the person of Jesus Christ and understanding. When we do that, we understand, like that song we sang, that the God of glory and power came to us and washed our feet. It's a love that we don't even understand. The Apostle Paul goes into greater detail about this humility, the humility of Christ and how we're to imitate it. Go ahead and turn your Bibles just real quick to Philippians 2. Philippians 2, 3 through 8. It should be page 1072 if you're using a pew Bible. Philippians 2, starting in verse 3, says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
We will only be able to love like Christ when we realize that we are powerless and helpless without him. When we realize that we are nothing without him, it's then that we begin to understand that our life isn't ours anyway. It's not even our life. Who are we to think that it's ours? It belongs to him. And if our life belongs to him, then we must follow his example and give it away as a gift to others in loving service. Because if this is the example that our Lord and Master set before us, how could we possibly think that there's some other way? That there's some loophole around this whole service, giving your life away thing. There is no other way. Our lives are to be poured out as gifts so that other people could live and experience the hope that we've been given. Now flip back to the Gospel of John again. This is the last time you'll have to switch over, I promise. Page 981. John 13, verses 6 through 9. It says, Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Now there's a lot that we can take away from Peter's response to his kind of refusal of allowing Jesus to wash his feet. And I can relate to this story because I've been in a similar situation. I remember the first time I participated in washing the feet of one of my friends. I was on a college service trip to Dallas, Texas with about 20 friends, and our leader gathered us up one night. We had no idea what was coming. He told us what we were about to do. We're going to wash each other's feet, and immediately I froze. My knots in my stomach, man, and the reason why is because I'm an extreme germaphobe. Any other germaphobes out there? Three of us? All right. Four of us. B.S. Calling that. B.S. I'm one of those guys, I wash my hands 20 to 30 times a day. My knuckles bleed a lot. I open doors with my feet or with articles of clothing to prevent touching a doorknob. I hate going to the gas station and touching those gringy pumps. Every time I pump my gas, i got to get in my car and get my sanitizer out because you never know what nasty dude touched it before you, right? (laughs) You never know. I hate it. So when I heard that I was going to have to get down and wash the stinky, sweaty feet of one of my friends... I thought, man, this is really, really going to stretch me. This is going to be uncomfortable. But as the evening went on, and we went around the room, and I watched some of my other friends, you know, serve someone else across the room, and it came time for me, and the bowl, you know, was given to me, and I had to walk across the room and serve someone, I noticed it wasn't really that painful. It went by really quick, and it wasn't as bad as I thought. Probably some of it was I took comfort in knowing as soon as we're done, I'm claiming the bathroom to get that sanitizer, get the soap ready, right, to wash the germs off. But here's what was hard. When a friend approached me and stooped down to serve me by washing my feet, I was kicking and screaming on the inside. 
Everything within me wanted to resist their service. I felt bad for them. I felt that I was being an inconvenience to them. I didn't want them to, I didn't want to be a burden to them or feel like they had to waste their time on me. My pride just wanted to say, dude, I'm good. Just don't worry about me. Go to this person next to me. I'm good. You don't need to serve me. Are you like that? When people try to serve you, is it hard for you to receive it? Can you relate to Peter in this story? One of the truest forms of humility is our willingness to receive kindness from another. One of the truest forms of humility is our willingness to receive kindness from another. When we don't allow others to serve us, it robs them of an opportunity to be blessed. It robs them of an opportunity to have their character developed. And when we don't let others serve us because of our pride or perhaps our low self-esteem, it robs us both from experiencing the heart of God. Because God is glorified when we allow others to show us kindness. And some of us here today not only struggle with receiving kindness from others, but we struggle with receiving it from God himself. Perhaps because of our past, feeling undeserving, feeling unqualified. We may believe it, but receiving it is a whole different story. Because it's a love that we can't fathom. Because we've done nothing to earn it. We've done nothing to deserve it. It's just freely given and it can only be received humbly. And so we struggle with it. So where do you find yourself in this story this morning? The story of John 13. Are you like the disciples? Kicking and fighting your way to the top to prove that you are number one. Are you like Peter? unwilling to receive kindness from others? Are you unwilling or unable to receive the kindness that God is trying to extend to you? Are you like Christ in this story? Do you see your life simply as a gift to be given away so that others can live and experience the joy that you have? There are lots of things we can take away from this story. We hit on a lot of key points. It's quite possible that maybe something's resonating in your heart that's completely different than the person sitting next to you. And that is completely fine. The key to everything we discussed this morning is found in what we're asked to do during this season of Lent. And that is to set our eyes on the person of Jesus Christ and to discover his beauty and his glory and his power Because when we do that, we realize that nothing we have is ours. Everything we have and everything we are is his. And it's then we can give our life away and offer life to the world. And as we come to the communion table today, we remember that even on the way to the cross, Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. On the most agonizing night of his life, He served his friends. As he approached death, he still gave his life away. Have you allowed yourself to be humbled by the love of Christ? Because when you do that, you can give your life away as a gift and follow in the footsteps of our King. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll have a few minutes of silence. The ushers will dismiss you. You can come up. Take a piece of the bread, dip it in the juice, um, and there's also uh, some gluten-free 
um, food over here as well um, if you need that. So thank you. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are so good. And I, we can't even understand the love that you have lavished on us. It is a love that does not make sense that we cannot logically rationalize or understand because we have done nothing to deserve it, God. And from the bottom of our hearts, God, we thank you that we get to call you our father, our daddy. God, help us to receive that love, Lord. I pray that it will humble us to our knees and that that will lead, God, to a life of just service, to bringing your kingdom here on earth with whatever that looks like, with the ways that you've called us to give our life away, Jesus. God, and we thank you that, man, you choose us to represent you. That blows my mind. That we get to be your hands and your feet, God, to a hurting, suffering world, God. That we get to offer hope to them. Not from nothing, anything we've done, God, but it's all because of your grace. Jesus, I pray that right now, whatever is stirring in these people's hearts, God, help them to take it home with them and wrestle with it, God. Help them to see who they are in this story and to honestly examine that before you during this time of silence.